0: hi and welcome to failureology a podcast about engineering failures i'm your host nicole
1: and i'm brian and we're both from calgary alberta canada
0: thanks again to our patreon subscribers
1: for less than the cost of almost anything because inflation sucks you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures how much does that cost per month nicole
0: five dollars canadian per month to get more interesting engineering failure episodes And I wanted to add that we have on our website, failureology.ca, if you go to the exclusive content page, there's a list of all of the mini failures that we've done so far. So you can go there and see if there's any that interest you or some that you that you want to listen to. And then you kind of know what you're you're getting yourself into on our Patreon instead of just uh, just going in blind. So we do publish that list there and it gets regularly updated.
1: There's some great mini failures too. I was just thinking there's a beer flood on there. There's the molasses floods. There's some airplane related ones. There's some train ones. There's some amusement park ones. There's something on there for everyone.
0: Some fire ones too. Those are good. Yeah. So on this episode of Failureology, we have a guest. We're joined by Leanne, a mechanical engineer in the renewables industry. Welcome Leanne. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. I've been working in the the waste-to-energy side of the renewables industry for about 15 years, and I've done a little bit of everything uh, from process design to plant commissioning, and I've spent the last six years doing maintenance and reliability at a chemical plant, and we're converting uh, municipal waste into methanol. Uh, when I was in my undergrad, I actually got to do a, a student exchange in Germany for a summer where I learned about all the different uh, renewable technologies uh, that they're using at the time. And I'm I'm very excited to talk with you guys about turbines today. So thanks for having me again.
1: We're so excited to have you on Failureology. This is something that I don't know a lot about. I've seen wind turbines, but I've never thought about the failures or the, the engineering that goes behind them. So it's, it's great that you were able to join.
2: Yes, yeah, So one thing that's interesting about, uh, about wind turbine failures is the, especially the ones we're going to talk about is they're, they're very visible. So, so wind turbines are kind of out in the open and you can see them and, uh, and when they fail, it can, it can be very spectacular a very uh, interesting show spectacular i've, I've, is a great seen, a,
1: I've seen a couple of youtube videos of, of failures and they're they're fairly fairly yeah. catastrophic failures when they when they do fail and, and where nicole and i live uh, just to the south of calgary um, down by pincher creek it, it's quite windy there so there are some some wind turbines um, and they do power and we'll talk about this a little bit later on they do power part of our, our transportation system here in calgary which i think is really cool
0: it's a great alternative form of energy you know, in Alberta, we get a lot of pro oil and gas voices. And I support those voices. But I do think that diversification is good in any market, because then when the bottom falls out of the bucket, you've got other avenues that you are have already prepared to take you forward. And so I think, you know, having a little bit of everything in our our energy portfolio is a fantastic idea. Oh yeah,
2: but-
1: yeah, absolutely. And and I think we're seeing you know some typical you know standard oil and gas companies or companies that had a lot of oil and gas portfolio related things that they are branching out into renewable energy resources, which I think is is a great thing to see.
2: Yeah, what I was going to say is the um, not a free well, it is a free resource. It's just blowing around out there, and um, it's it's something that's never going away. So it's uh, it's good that we can harness that into into electricity.
0: Yeah, especially in southern Alberta, I've uh, I've done some projects down just around Lethbridge. You have to get special roofing material because the wind ratings have to meet a certain level because it's so windy down there. Um uh, and I've heard a lot of people that live there also have, you know, they live there they live there and they love it, but they struggle with the wind because it blows so hard sometimes. And so I think wind turbines are a great
2: application for that area. Mm-hmm. And, and you've noticed that all the trees in Lethbridge are kind of leaning to one side. I didn't notice that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the windmills are also really pretty because when you're driving down to Lethbridge, if you're driving south, so uh, to your right, which is is looking west, you see all these, these uh, wind turbines, but you're kind of still in the prairie. So you've got all this prairie grass, you've got the wind turbines, and then you've got the mountains in the background. So it just looks really pretty as someone who didn't grow up in Alberta driving down there for the first time. I just thought that that visual was really cool.
1: This week in engineering news, staying on the theme of this episode, boosting wind farm output without new equipment. This one, like a lot of our news items, comes from MIT. Wind farms around the world, they produce more than 5% of the world's electricity. Each wind turbine in the farm is controlled as an individual freestanding unit, even when there are dozens or hundreds of turbines in the farm. Engineers at MIT, the smart people that they are, found that just by modeling the wind flow of the entire farm, they can optimize individual units within the farm. The increase in energy output is modeled at about 1.2% overall and 3% for optimal wind speeds. If this algorithm was implemented at every wind farm in the world, it would be the same as adding 3,600 new wind turbines or enough to power 3 million homes. So this is not an insignificant increase.
0: So in order to get the most out of wind farm areas, you know, the land is expensive. The turbines are spaced close together, which means that turbines in the front of the wind farm send turbulent wakes to those downwind which is something that the current method of controlling turbines individually does not take into account. And I have to admit, when I read this article, this this seems pretty straightforward as someone who doesn't work in this area. This is not my area of expertise, wind turbines. I've never worked on one. But having the wind farm work as a cohesive unit does make sense. This seems... I feel bad for saying, why did not you guys figure this out sooner? But this does seem pretty straightforward. It does seem a little silly to have them all controlled individually. I think you are going to be able to address some of that turbulent wake controlling them individually because at least you're still making adjustments, but you're not treating them as a single unit, even though they impact each other. So the algorithm that they developed uses physics-based data-assisted modeling that learns from operational wind farm data to find the optimal orientation for each turbine at a given time, depending on the wind conditions. And then the turbines adjust their vertical axis position to align the incoming wind direction and speed. The article is quite informative and it includes a lot more information about how they developed and tested the algorithm in real wind farms around the world. So if you want to read more about it, check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca.
1: This week's episode of Failurology is brought to you by the Sit-Down Stand-Up Paddleboard Company.
0: Whether you like to sit down or stand up,
1: the Sit-Down Stand-Up Paddleboard Company has something for you.
0: Don't miss our paddle sale, it's quite the ordeal. Now on to this week's engineering failure. Wind turbines. We're going to do something a little different on today's episode. We normally would pick one failure or maybe two similar failures. I know we've done uh, floating bridges. We put two of those together in one episode. But the wind turbine failures, there's a lot of them and they're all pretty straightforward. I think if we were to do them all, it would be kind of a weird episode or maybe a bunch of mini failure episodes. And we didn't want to do that. So, what we're going to do today instead, something different, something we haven't done before. We're going to talk about all of the different ways in which a wind turbine can fail, and then discuss some examples of each of those types. And we've broken it down into four different kinds of failures. But before we get into that, let's talk about, um, we've kind of touched a little bit on wind farm impact in Alberta, but Brian, do you want to tell us a little bit more? You mentioned the C train being wind powered, which I think is pretty cool. Do you want us to tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so um for, for listeners that don't know a lot about Calgary, Alberta, it's it's really the Houston of of Canada is probably a good way to describe it. So a lot of oil and gas companies have their head offices here here in Calgary. So as Nicole mentioned, oil and gas is a big um contributor to the revenue for Calgary. There's there's tons of companies that are directly or indirectly related to oil and gas and oil and gas servicing, so extraction of oil and gas out of the ground or the processing or the refining of, of oil and gas. And one of the things that that they've done in Calgary here is our, our light rail transportation system that's known as the C-train, it's 100% powered by renewable energy, which is the only light rail transportation system in North America that is powered by renewable energy. And the way that they do this is there isn't a, there isn't a dedicated wind farm that's dedicated solely to the C-Train system, but what the transportation or the transit authority has done is they've purchased the equivalent amount of, of energy from a wind farm located near Calgary. So the city purchases essentially enough wind power to match the LRT usage, which, which makes it I guess 100% funded by renewable energy, which I still think is a really cool thing in a city that's predominantly known for oil and gas and the Calgary Stampede and possibly the 1988 Winter Olympics.
0: Possibly. Probably a little bit less that one. It's been a while.
1: Some of <laughs> us are very old and remember them very fondly.
0: <laughs> I think the other thing uh, that's interesting about Calgary that not a lot of people know, and we're, we're not talking about solar today, but along the vein of renewables, Calgary gets... Definitely over 300 days of sunshine a year. I think we're usually around the 330-day mark. We're the sunniest large major city in Canada. There's a lot of opportunities for solar here as well. We also have a lot of land and a lot of really smart people. So we have a lot of people with the skill set to take on these different renewable projects, uh, which I think is is really interesting. I also think there's a way to use air generated by moving trains, specifically in a tunnel, uh, as an energy source. This is just something that I was thinking about as I was researching this episode. I don't know how viable it would be and if you get the most bang for your buck, but I think you know, somewhere like New York City, an underground tunnel system with a lot of trains that are running all the time, I think could potentially benefit from something like that. So it's an interesting idea, full of ideas
2: the um the high speed train that they're proposing between edmonton and calgary isn't that one going to be in a tunnel i thought i heard that it's going to be a pressurized like ultra high speed
1: i've, I've seen a number of proposals um some of them are more viable than others i i feel that the tunnel option there if, if you had unlimited funding that one might be a good way to go but i i just can't see it being um economically feasible um uh, to make it work i that would be a 300 kilometer long tunnel or 250 kilometer long tunnel. So I just, I can't quite see it happening. I really hope it does happen because that would be really cool. Um, but I think it would probably ultimately be cost prohibitive.
2: Yeah. Cause I, I think it's a new technology for, for trains, high speed maglev trains to, to be in a pressurized tunnel like that. But I, I feel like the, the route between Edmonton and Calgary would be like an ideal test area.
1: It's it's fairly flat. I mean there's there's no mountains in the way. There's a there's a number of, you know, fairly major river crossings. Um the elevation change is about fifteen hundred feet between Calgary and Edmonton. So Calgary's about four thousand feet and then Edmonton's at about twenty two hundred feet. So yeah, I, I think that's fairly flat as as far as a grade goes over, you know, two hundred and fifty kilometers. So yeah, I think that would be an you know, an ideal, you know, test area for a for a long train like that. You know, versus somewhere over in, you know, Sweden or Germany or Um, you know, somewhere where there's quite a few more, more mountains throughout the whole country.
2: That and population, like there's, there's almost, there's no cities, there's no population between, I mean, there's, there is, but it's not like in Europe, like you're saying, there's, you don't have to go around towns.
0: You'd really just have to stop in Red Deer and you'd be done. The nice thing about the train from Calgary to Edmonton is, to me, that's step one. So you put the train in between Calgary to Edmonton, you have a stop in Red Deer. But then once you've got that infrastructure and you've you've proven hopefully that people will ride it and that it's a viable market then you can start expanding that train and so then it becomes much easier to get a train to Lethbridge and another one to Fort McMurray and one to Banff and you it's way it seems way more doable to expand our network because when you look at Alberta as a province as a whole it's a lot of train to get to connect all of the large cities but when you mm-hmm. if you think oh i'm just going to start with these two and then go from there i think that's a a better way to go about it. And that's kind of how the C train in Calgary was approached. They built it well, the initial one was a big push because they built it for the 88 Olympics, but then they've just been slowly adding stations stations and expanding the network from there.
1: Still don't have a train to the airport though.
0: Yeah, I know. It's embarrassing. <laughs> we're one of the only I think we're one of the only major cities in North America that doesn't have a train at their airport. There are others. Yeah. We're not the only yeah. one. But there were one of the only ones. But I think, you know, our our transportation is still significantly better than other cities. I've heard Ottawa's, I don't even think Ottawa has a train network, which is pretty bad. (laughs) The other thing that would be nice about connecting us to Edmonton is then we could get on via rail because Calgary is not part of Canada's rail network. So if we wanted to take the train to Vancouver or Toronto, we'd have to drive to Edmonton first. And at that point why not just fly or drive wherever we need to go? And so having the high-speed train to Edmonton would allow us to then jump onto that via rail network, which I think would also be beneficial. Um, Not that I necessarily want to take a train to Ontario because it's a bit of a journey, but just the idea is nice to think about. I feel like we're left out of the train network. It's not. It sucks.
1: (laughs) I think one of the issues that, that trains will always struggle with here in North America is that a lot of the, the rail rights and the right of way uh, agreements are for companies that typically haul freight. So, you know, CP Rail or CN Rail or BNSF or um, Union Pacific in the States and and passenger rail service really, you know, kind of is a second priority or third priority to getting freight uh, rail traffic through. So a lot of the passenger trains do wind up sitting for extended periods on on various sidings.
0: Yeah, that's a great point if we had more riders that could shift, right? Like just because that's the way it is now doesn't mean that's the way it's going to be forever. And, and it might be that way forever, but. I, I, I don't
1: see that shifting from, from the freight rail standpoint. Like they've had some of these right of way agreements and, you know, track in place for, you know, a hundred plus years. And we've seen this in, in major cities. I mean, Calgary is a good example where the train does run right through the middle of downtown and there is literally no incentive for the rail company to move those rails from downtown i mean it, it's cost prohibitive into the billions of dollars i believe edmonton moved their their rail traffic from downtown to the north end of the city and it was over a billion dollars i think is what they wound up paying to you know the city of edmonton paying the, the rail company to move their lines and their yards outside of the city so i hope the passenger stuff goes ahead i just don't know if it's a viable thing um to go ahead unfortunately
0: yeah fair enough well that was a long tangent <laughs> <laughs> We we love trains Uh, Leanne,
2: what's the wind farm impact like in Germany? Uh, Yeah, so in in Germany, they're actually the the largest wind power producer in the European Union. By quite a large margin, they have over 64,000 megawatts installed uh, wind turbines. And in 2020, which was their best year producing on record, uh, they produced 132 terawatt hours of, of wind power, which is quite a lot. It uh, Turns out, 20% of the electricity produced in in all of Germany last year was uh, was wind power, which is compared to six percent in Alberta, for example. But overall, Germany was producing more wind power last year than than all of Alberta's electricity uh, generators combined. So, so just to give you a comparison, the the land area mass, you know, uh, Germany was is I think not quite 50% of of the land mass of of Alberta. I think it's that way; it's not the other way. In any case, I think what it means is a, a place like Alberta has a lot of potential uh, for wind. There's there's so much land in Alberta, and especially in the southern parts where there's uh, there's no trees and there's a little bit more population. So Germany would have a lot, also have
0: a lot more people. Oh yeah, there's there's something like eighty million people here. <laughs> that's more than all of Canada. That's,
1: that's more than <laughs> Canada has. Uh, yeah.
0: We have about so, four and a half million people in Alberta, so we have a lot of yeah. space.
2: Yeah. A lot of space, and maybe not a lot of users, but we—I think in Alberta they're, they're importing power some of the time, so they—they have a, a tie-in between BC uh, to Saskatchewan, also to to Montana. So they, you know, instead of importing power from from the the local neighboring areas, um, yeah, I think there's there's potential to produce it uh, locally because we don't have a lot of potential for for hydroelectricity, for example, uh, as a renewable source.
0: We do have a lot of rivers, but not enough to kind of create hydro in the way that BC and Ontario and Quebec can.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's where BC gets a lot of their power from is, is hydro. So Germany is producing 20% of, of their overall electricity is coming from wind. But it took the last 14 years of product development and industry development and government initiative uh, and and really growing pains for, for wind power to climb that high. So from from 6% where Alberta is today to to 20% where Germany is now uh it took 14 years uh, for Germany to do it and but really in, in that span of time the cost of wind power has been reduced by half so so it should be easier uh, there's a lot of experience and there's uh there's some better designs out there so yeah that's
0: the thi- that's the interesting thing about these other forms of energy generation is that as more people start to use them, they start to get better and more cost effective Mm -hmm. and more efficient because everyone is looking for a way to optimize that energy source and get the most out of it. And so we're seeing a lot of development over these different, you know, solar is the same way. We're seeing a lot of improvements in solar energy as well as wind. Um, So I I think that's really cool. They kind of, I wouldn't say they sat fully stagnant, but they kind of plateaued I think for a while and now we're starting to see another big push also Europe is probably in a different position than North America with all of the things going on with Russia and trying to reduce that dependency there's a bigger push and a lot more people are invested in making that change to get off of that dependency and to be able to to power their energy loads more independently. So I think that's also a driving factor. That's obviously a newer factor that's over the last six months or, or a year, but it sounds like Germany was prepared. They've, I mean, if anyone's gonna innovate something, it's the Germans, they're pretty good <laughs> at that stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: After all of this positive discussion about wind turbines and renewable energy sources, we're gonna move on to the failure portion of this episode. And like Nicole mentioned, there's, there's four kind of broad categories that we found when we were researching this. Uh, for failures of wind turbines so i'll just kind of go over them at a very high level and then we'll talk about a specific failure of of each type or a couple different specific failures of each type so four types of wind turbine failure that we found were blade failure generator failure gearbox failure and then the tower foundation failure which to me not being an expert in wind turbines sounds like all of the parts of a wind turbine
0: (laughs) pretty much
2: yeah (laughs) Yep. (laughs)
1: Failure number one for blade failures. So the main function of the blades, I'm sure most of you kind of know this, you can guess this, is the blades are there to boost energy production. Without the blades, you can't really generate any power because there'd be nothing for the wind to push on, nothing for it to turn. The way the power is, is increased, so you can either increase the length of the rotor blades on the wind turbine to catch more wind, or you can adjust the pitch angle of the blade to account for variable wind speeds or variable wind directions. And in 2001, the largest operating turbine was 14 megawatts with 107 meter long blades. Just to put that into perspective, when you're driving your car, 100 meters doesn't seem like a very long distance to drive. The odometer clicks over pretty quick. That's the length of a football field. So there's a blade, one blade, a single blade on the wind turbine is the length of a football field. To me, that is that is quite staggering. That something that's spinning in the air is the length of a football field. Like that's that's astounding and I, I i've watched some videos of the blades being transported and the the coordination that's required to drive these wind turbines to site on on trucks is absolutely mind-blowing to me right? how how all of that works because wind turbines are usually in fairly windy areas they're on top of ridges so the roads are not they're not straight they're not you know, an 80 lane interstate where they can block off a bunch of lanes. They're pretty narrow, windy roads, and somehow they maneuver these super long blades all the way to the top of these ridgelines. I'm impressed by that part, and just by the length of the blades. Unfortunately, though, with the length of the blades, uh, longer blades, they do um, add additional stress along the entire length of the blade, just from the sheer weight of the blade and also the momentum of the blade spinning through the air. So the adjustable blade portion as well. So being able to change the pitch of the blade. Um, kind of the same way that you change the the blade angle on a propeller in an airplane there's a big mechanism that controls all of that blade angle so again this just adds to complexity just an additional complexity issue that again can fail on the on the blade component there so considering factors like wind magnitude temperature density contamination all of these things they all vary wildly through the year even hour by hour i mean where i'm sure some of you live the weather changes hour by hour minute by minute and the blades, they take the brunt force of all these changes. In 2018, it was estimated that 3,800 blades are damaged each, each year on some 700,000 installed blades. And the damage to this, it can be anywhere from you know cracking in the, in the blade, in the gel coatings, to complete and unfortunately rapid destruction of, of these blades.
0: The blade failure is the most common failure of wind turbines, and that's not really surprising. These are the largest component at over 100 meters long, and they are exposed to a lot of things that I hadn't really considered, like rain and hail and freeze-thaw conditions and birds and all of those things. So there's a number of common failures or flaws that we see with wind turbine blades, Um, Before I get into that list, I do want to mention that these blades are almost always made out of fiberglass. That's because of the lightweight and strong nature of fiberglass. And so it does allow you to get blades of that size. I think if they were trying to use a different material that was heavier, they wouldn't be able to go nearly as long. There'd be too much stress on the gearbox and the foundation. The common flaws of blade failure are debonding of the fiberglass layers. So those layers start to come apart. Joint failure at the blade root, so where the blade attaches to the turbine itself. Splitting of the blade along the fibers. So again, that's kind of part goes part and parcel with debonding of the layers. Gel coat cracks, which allow for moisture ingress. So as these blades get hit with hail and birds and everything else, that exterior coating on the blades can start to wear away, and then as that happens, moisture can get inside the blade and start to damage it. Erosion at the leading edge, and that's the leading edge is the furthest, the tip of the of the blade, the furthest point from the, the foundation or from the, the turbine itself. Excessive blade flex resulting in the blade striking the tower or extreme load buckling um, where the blade folds back in on itself, which would be really s- kind of scary to see. So because these are fiberglass, they do have a lot of give to them, which is another benefit of using fiberglass as the blade material. But because these blades are exposed to such extreme weather conditions in some circumstances, there's a lot of flex that gets put on that blade that can stress it and make it move and bend in, in all sorts of different ways. There's also the momentum of the blade going around that's also impacts that, that force. A number of the contributing factors that are leading to all of these different failures are weather. So I mentioned uh, rain, hail, also ice, high wind but even lightning strikes is another another factor. Material or controls or braking failures can also lead to failure of the turbine blades. And then poor design that doesn't account for high wind conditions or fatigue design. So these, you know, these wind turbines are sitting out in the wind all year round, 24-7, 365. And ideally they're spinning that whole time, but not necessarily. And you don't have control over the wind conditions. And so if the designers aren't looking at the, what the worst possible conditions can be and not planning for those, then you can see early failure of some of these these blades from either high wind or just stress from, from fatigue.
2: Yeah, just talking about fatigue design, have you guys seen videos floating around? There's a pretty sizable research facility in Denmark and they're doing uh, wind turbine blade testing. And and you can watch it and they've got this kind of mass that's that's attached to the middle of the blade and it's got a weight that's rotating around and the blade is is just flexing and they're they're looking for the fatigue properties of, of those blades. It's it's really, really interesting uh, to see to see them testing it and see how much research goes into uh, the, the blade design.
0: I think I did see that video on Reddit, I think. Either the engineering subreddit or engineering porn is another good one. <laughs> Weird name, but it's got good stuff. It's got the <laughs> nerdiest of nerdy engineering stuff. Uh, but yeah, weird name.
1: Maybe maybe don't look that one up at work. Like I realize the content is probably all right for work, but depending what your IT administrators kind of has some settings set to you. Maybe, maybe just do that one at home.
2: Okay, so we could talk about a, a few examples of uh, blade failures. Uh, first one is uh, Perkins High School, which is located in, in Sandusky, Ohio, which is on the southern shore of Lake Erie. Uh, they had twenty. They had three twenty-kilowatt turbines installed January third, two thousand nine, and uh, they were connected to the power grid on February fourth. A few days later, uh, on February seventh, the weather was reasonably windy with uh, thirty-five to forty-kilometer-per-hour winds, gusting up to eighty-five kilometers per hour. And I just wanted to note that the typical cutout speed. Uh, for wind turbine is, is 25 meter per second wind speed, which is 90 kilometers an hour. And at that point, um, the controls uh, basically turn the blade pitch to a uh, uh, to position that stops the wind turbine. And, and it doesn't spin uh, in, in wind speeds that are faster than, than 90 kilometers an hour. So the wind speed on average was 35 to 40 kilometers an hour and gusting up to 85 Uh, We we weren't able to find any official reports, but the pre-investigation speculation was that one of the blades had flexed in a gust of wind and uh, contacted the tower. The rotor then became unbalanced, uh, with only two out of three blades spinning, and the other two blades contacted the tower shortly afterwards. Uh, To make matters worse, at Perkins High School, a second failure occurred um, in, in that installation two years later, on November 29th, 2010, Again, we didn't find any official investigations for that failure, but uh, there were rumours of sheared bolts at the connection of the root to the blade. In this instance, the turbine was, was brought to a stop before the other two blades had failed. It was reported that this was the third set of blades that had been installed uh, on the turbines. Uh, presumably, both of the previous blade swap activities were done uh, proactively as a result of the 2009, uh, the first failure. Both of these failures fall into the uh, what we call the, the infant mortality range of, of the reliability curve and uh, were likely either design error or could be maintenance error. In the first case, either the blades were too flexible or, or could have been maybe the control system wasn't well tuned to handle gust of wind. Could have been the first time the machine had been turned on and, and maybe it was a badly executed startup sequence. Uh, in the second case of the sheared bolts could have been either design error or maintenance error. Maybe the, the wrong size of bolt or or bolt grade or torque, the bolt torque could have been specified for the new and, and reinforced blades, or maybe the, just the wrong type of bolts were installed or improperly torqued.
1: We did find a similar bolt shear failure that occurred in Sedinge, Denmark on February 23rd, 2008, where the root cause of the sheared bolts was deemed to be insufficient bolt torque that allowed some of the bolts to fail in fatigue, which caused a domino effect for the remaining bolts. It is possible that the bolts had been insufficiently torqued since the turbine was installed in 2000, and the deficiency was not found in any of the annual inspections. Following the incident, it was recommended that the Danish wind turbine certifying body produce a guideline for ongoing service and maintenance of wind turbines in Denmark, including such critical items as bolt torque specifications and checks. Just as an aside, um, this is sort of related to bolt torque, Um, At one point, many, many years ago, I was driving back from a hike and one of the wheels on my car at the time, um, it decided that it no longer wanted to be part of the car. Um, So I got to watch my front left tire bounce down the road in front of me as the car slowed down. So again, I don't know if that was related to bolt torque. I assume the the car that I had, it was a a Volvo. So instead of using a, a nut, um, it uses a full, a full bolt. There's a big threaded bolt on there. So I was driving down a gravel road. So I don't know if they were improperly torqued at some point and they just started vibrating loose. But now pretty much at every hike that I go on, or at least a hike where I have to go down a gravel road, I hop out and I check all of the torque on, uh, on the bolts on the wheels. So yeah, it's important to have your, your bolts torqued properly. Nothing, Really resulted out of this incident. I went to get a new uh, new tire. It cracked the hub on the on the wheel, so I got new tires, and that was uh, that was about it. The car still still runs. It got up to four hundred thousand kilometers, but check the torque on your wheels. It's important.
0: Yeah, I want to add. I've so I've heard that story a number of times. Very funny story, but I want to add that that road. If you're from Alberta, it's the Spray Lakes Road down south of Canmore. And it's very washboard, very unpleasant to ride on. Uh, I was down there hiking over the summer and it hasn't gotten any better. So of all, I'm not surprised that was the road that that happened on because there's a lot of bouncing that happens. Again, not a great road to to drive down. But you brought up a point that I was actually going to bring up, which is, so, in Alberta, we change our tires for summer and winter. Most people do just because the winter conditions are so challenging that it's nice to have winter tires. But when you put new tires on, you torque your wheels. And if even if you didn't change your tires, you still should be torquing your wheels on your car at least once a year, if not every six months. And so, I find it a bit interesting that that's not a requirement on this wind turbine because you You'd think I would have expected that they would retorque those bolts every inspection as part of the inspection process. that seems pretty straightforward, considering it is something that's spinning around continuously and exposed to all of these different elements. I don't know if this was just a flaw on this one. On this one wind turbine where they didn't check the torque and maybe it was just something that got missed and and it could be as simple as it not getting onto the inspection report and so then it wasn't something that was flagged to the inspector every time they were there to to check and
2: do that work it, it could be that they're not accessible either like i, I forget what it looks like on the inside uh, of the hub and, and how those things are connected and i mean, i don't remember if the bolts are, are inside of the hub where it would be accessible or if it's on the outside, like you'd have to climb out out of the cabin uh, to, to torque those. I I don't remember. Yeah,
0: that's a great point because yeah, the less of uh, this is something I have to think about a lot in mechanical design is if something's not accessible, no one's going to maintain it or change it or fix it.
2: Yeah, not not to excuse the the maintenance people from from something that maybe should have been done, but um, but yeah, it's it's easy to overlook if you don't see those bolts when you're up there. Yeah, yeah, great point. And just a just a note that. That hand tight is is not the same as as torque torque to spec.
0: <laughs> yeah, sometimes hand tightening can be over torque, and you can crack it. Sometimes, a lot more often, it's under tightened. It's under tightened when you're not torquing it. But a lot of bolts are designed to be tightened to a specific amount, and using a torque wrench will get you dialed into that exact amount, give or take
2: a little bit. Yeah, if you have a low grade bolt, uh, it's yeah, like you say, it's very easy to over torque. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that's little
0: great yeah, yeah we've come across that in piping some of the couplings have to be so there's two pieces that clamp around the pipe and then that when they where they connect together you know there's a hinge on one side and then there's a bolt on the other and I've definitely had arguments with some installers about how those get tightened and because some manufacturers require them to be torqued and so I say I need to see that you've done that and they're like we don't torque these and I'm like No, no, you have to. The installation instructions say they have to be torqued, so you have to do that. If you don't want to torque them, you have to use one of the other ones that doesn't require torquing, and then they don't like that conversation. It's not my, I mean, to be fair, it's not my favorite conversation either. There's usually hundreds of these throughout the site. Some of them are accessible. Unfortunately, some of them aren't, and then there's just me like, no, you got to go torque all of those.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We really enjoyed our conversation and side tangents with Leanne, so... We didn't want to edit those out, which means this is a really long episode. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a slight pause here and bring you the second half of the wind turbine failures in our next episode. Sorry for the disappointment. So there you have it. The most common cause of wind turbine failures is blade failures. We also talked about optimizing wind farms and how wind energy has impacted Alberta and also Germany.
0: And don't forget about that train tangent, man. I really love trains. They're so great. My favorite form of transportation. Twinkle toes over there, could you be still, please? For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at failureology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us on our Patreon page. And just so you know, if you reach out to us, we will reply. I'm in charge of that part of the process, and I can guarantee I will respond. Check out the show notes for links to all of these ways to get in touch with us. Thanks everyone for listening and tune into the next episode of the second part of this wind turbine failure series, where we'll examine generator, gearbox, and foundation failures and share more wind turbine failure examples. Bye everyone. Talk soon.